0: You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Every time I am tempted, every time, to begin our time by saying, Welcome to the Home Depot. <laughs> Every time. It sounds just like it. Or built for tough. Something like that. I mean, it, it just has that, that vibe. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Read with me. John says this. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him... But does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he Walked. There's a great story about a woman in the uh, early to mid-1900s named Florence Foster Jenkins. Florence Foster Jenkins. She was a socialite lived in New York City, received a sizable inheritance midway through her life in her 50s, and began a, an opera career for lack of better terminology, she began an opera career. She used the money that she inherited to fund this newfound passion and career to be the best opera singer she could possibly be. And she took it very seriously. She held annual recitals at the Ritz Carlton in the 1930s and the 1940s. In 1944, at age 76, she held a benefit for World War II soldiers coming back into the United States at Carnegie Hall, and it is still to this day one of the most successful concerts that the hall has ever hosted. Uh, There are reports of thousands that lined the streets to get tickets, and the performance sold out in minutes, another writer said. In fact, it is the third most requested recording in Carnegie Hall history to this day. People still trying to get recordings of it to listen to it. What's so fascinating about her career, though, is, is not her late start into opera singing. It's, it's not that she was a socialite before she was an opera singer, but the fact that she was horrible at opera singing. One writer wrote, history agrees with hands held over its ears that she could not sing for sour apples. Jenkins' nickname behind her back was the tone deaf diva or the terror of the high seas, like the note third most requested recording in Carnegie Hall history, and it was punctuated by what another writer said was the most painful rendition of Ave Maria ever. (laughs) Jenkins was terrible at singing, and the astounding part about her story is that she was completely unaware of how terrible she was. When people would laugh and jeer at her in the audience, she took it as delirious enthusiasm for her talent. (laughs) She thought they loved watching her, and in some strange way, they did love watching her. I mean, the, the Carnegie Hall show did sell out in minutes, literal minutes, thousands lying in the street trying to get tickets to see her sing, but not because she was great, because she was so confident and so awful at the same time. You know, people will say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, and people like Florence Foster Jenkins proved that wrong. It does matter what you believe. Because if what you believe does not match reality, it's just laughable delusion. And so that begs the question, how do you know if something is true? How do you know if something is true? How can you evaluate the truthfulness of something? How can you be sure? You typically begin with evidence, looking for evidence, correct? So if you feel sick, if you have body aches, if you develop a fever of some, or uh, body aches and, and let's say a cough, what's the first thing that you do? You complain, right? And then the second thing you do is you get a thermometer and check your temperature. And if you have a fever, that is sound evidence that what is happening inside of your body is maybe more than just allergies. Women, uh, if you are late during that time of the month, what's the first thing you do? You call a friend and freak out. What's the second thing you do? You take a pregnancy test. You want to know, is there evidence to back up what I think might be... True. If at first there is no evidence, we keep looking until we can find something to verify what it is that we think is going on. Now, with that in mind, let me ask this question. How do you know if you're really saved? What if we apply this logic to your salvation? How do you know if you're really saved? How do you know if you're really born again? I I think that living in the South in the Bible Belt, this is a question that is far uh, more prominent than questions up north and in other parts of the world where you would typically hear people ask, what must I do to be saved? I wanna get saved, I wanna to come to know Jesus. How do I do that? That's the question that we find often in the Bible, in the book of Acts, the jailer in Acts 16 when, when uh, Paul and, and Barnabas are there, Paul and Silas are there and, and, and remember the, the jailer after all the earthquake happens and all the cells open he thinks that they've escaped. He's about to commit suicide because he knows things are about to get bad for me that I let Paul go uh, under my watch and, and Paul says, hey, we're there. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, that's not really a question you hear as much in the Bible Belt because you've you know, grown up in church. You went to VBS and summer camp. You made a profession of faith when you were like three months old. Um, you know? and, and so uh, the question really more popular is, how do I know if it really took? How do I know if I'm really saved? If the validity of this is really real, really true, what evidence can I point to in my life that proves that it is real? That is what this passage this morning is concerned with. This morning, we pick up where we left off last week, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6, through 6, and, and John is going to explain in more or less ways, how you can know for sure you are saved. How do you know for sure that you're a believer in Jesus? What evidence can you point to? What's the proof? He's going to answer that in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's that simple. Now, pay attention to the word know there. That's the the Greek term genosko. Anytime it's used in conjunction with God, knowing God, having a relationship with God, it almost always means a saving knowledge of God, true faith, true belief. So how do you know that you have truly believed the gospel? How do you know that you truly know in a saving manner God? John says the answer is simple. You'll obey him. You'll obey him. That evidence in your life will be obedience. In fact, John goes on in verse four and he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In other words, we can say we know God, we can talk about how much we love God, but but if you don't keep his commandments, there's no evidence to back up your words. The proof for our love for Jesus and our relationship with him is that we actually do what he says we should do. We desire it. We desire obedience. We want to serve Him. We don't get it right every time. John's already qualified that in this letter. But because we walk in light, remember God is light and we should walk in Him. Because we walk in light, when we sin, when we fall short, that falling short is revealed to us. It becomes clear to us. And, and what did John say we're to do in those moments? We confess our sin to God and another person and that Christ is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness and he's able to do that. Why? Because he's our advocate before the Father who has laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice on our behalf. You could say it this way. Salvation in Christ will always produce obedience to Christ. Salvation in Christ will always produce obedience to Christ. A salvation in Christ without obedience to him is no salvation at all. Like Florence Foster Jenkins, it's laughable delusion. Now, with that in mind, here's what I want to do. I want to focus this morning on the result of obedience. Okay, We're going to take at face value that John is telling the truth here, that if you want to know whether or not you have true and lasting faith, evaluate your obedience in your life. Do you have a desire to serve him? Do you actually follow through with it more often than not? not, Again, not going to be perfect, but, but does your life model obedience to the Lord? If that's the case, then you can be certain. Now, let's talk about what does that obedience do for you? What does it look like in your life? It should shape you in some way. It should change you. There there are things that that obedience is, is practically good for in your life. It has benefits. So often, I think when we talk about obedience in the church, we often think of it as sort of the end goal of the Christian faith, like the target that you're aiming for. And it's important to note two things about obedience. Obedience, number one, is not the goal of the Christian faith. It is the result of the Christian faith not the goal of the Christian faith. Don't get this backwards. Don't think, well, I need to be more obedient so God will love me more. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. That's backwards. If you are not obedient to God's commands, the answer to that is not, I need to just try harder. That's, that's law, not gospel. That leads to death, not life. Don't, don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that that is how the Christian ought to think or live. If you want to be more obedient to Jesus, fall more in love with Jesus. That, that is the, the, overwhelming message of scripture. Those who love me will keep my commandments, Jesus says. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is a a very prominent message in Christ's preaching throughout the gospels. So if you desire more obedience, then desire to fall more in love with him. It is the result of Christian faith, not the goal of it. But secondly, obedience changes you. This is an important part that's going to really push us into the rest of the text this morning. In other words, the more you obey God, the more you pattern your life after his commandments, the more you become like him. Obedience is a transformative action. It's a transformative thing. You can think of it this way. Obedience is the evidence of true salvation. Sanctification is the evidence of true obedience. So in the same way that you can point to the validity of your salvation by saying, I live an obedient life to Christ, You can also point to the validity of your obedience by pointing to the sanctifying work God has done in you as he transforms you more and more into the image of Jesus. The question is how? How does it change you? What does obedience do to you? What are the changes that take place? There's three that we're going to cover this morning that I think are in this text pretty prominently. First, you begin to love like Christ. You begin to love like Christ. In verse 5, John says, But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now, what does that mean? That the love of God is perfected in you who keep his commandments? I'm going to give you a warning up front. So just hang in there for a moment. We're about to do some grammar. Okay? Not everyone's favorite subject. Worse still is that it's going to be in a different language, Greek. Uh, I want to walk through this with you because this is one of the rare examples in the New Testament where grammatically this can be translated in two different ways, and both of them are correct interpretations that I think the Bible supports, and both are contextually supported by the letter of 1 John as well. So this is important. We got to understand what is it that really John is trying to say here with regard to the love of God being perfected in us. In Greek, if you read this sentence, "the love of God is perfected," it's "he agape theu, to teleostai." If you break this down without any sort of like grammatical rendering, it's just very woodenly: "the love, the God has been completed or finished." Interestingly enough, this word "teleostai" it's the same root that we find in John nineteen thirty, when Jesus, upon breathing his last, last breath, says, "It is what finished." That's the Greek phrase there. It's a little bit different. Um, It's the the, uh, noun version, verb. There's a little bit of a difference there, but it's the same root. Finished, complete, perfected. It's the idea of it it being full, of it being completed or wrapped up. Now, the trick here, though, is not actually that word. The trick is to theu, which is a word, um, words that mean literally of God but they're in the genitive case. And again, this is gonna go over your head some, just follow me as best you can, we'll get to where the rubber meets the road. The genitive case can be translated in either a subjective or an objective form. And I'm gonna break down both of them for you and we're gonna decide what do we think John is doing here? Do we think that he is using the subjective genitive or the objective genitive? I'll let you try and evaluate before I give you my thoughts. Let's talk about the subjective first. The subjective genitive, if we translate it this way in verse 5, it reads this way. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly God's love for us is perfected. So the love of God is, is meant to be understood as God's love for us. What this would be saying then is that the more we keep the commandments of scripture, the more his love for us is perfected in our lives. Now this makes a lot of sense for a couple of reasons. Number one, John is going to emphasize God's love for us a lot in his writings, both in this letter and also in his gospel as well. In fact, probably the most popular verse in the entire world is what? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is clearly talking about God's love for us, and he's actually going to later allude to this passage in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. He says, in, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That phrase, the love of God, is identical in chapter 4, verse 9 to our passage here today uh, in chapter 2. And, and in four, nine, it is very clearly a subjective genitive. It is very clearly talking about God's love for us. So that's one reason why I think translating it that way is, is very sound. Number two, God's love for us is realized in the positive effects of obedience. Now, let me break that down and tell you what I mean by that. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again a hundred times before I'm done here, that God's commandments are meant to bring blessing into your life, not ruin. God's commandments are meant to bring blessing in your life, not ruin. We like to think that the Bible is just a big book of rules that just wants to ruin all of your fun. It's just a big wet blanket on all the things that you really think are fun and cool, and you can't do them if you're gonna follow the Bible, and it's gonna be just this boring life with no enjoyment whatsoever. And actually the opposite is true, that, that when you live your life patterned after God's word, it brings a deep sense of joy and fulfillment because you are living the life God intended you to live. You're, you're operating in a manner that you were designed to operate. God said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah forty-eight, eighteen. he said, if you had only paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. He's saying, if you had just paid attention, if you had just done what I said to do, you would have great well-being right now. Psalm chapter 1 uh, deals with the man who is blessed. Do you remember? It says in, in, in verse 3 that, that the one who delights in the commandments, the law of the Lord, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. In other words, he is he is acting in the way he was designed to act. A tree is meant to blossom. It's meant to be watered. It's meant to bear fruit. The man who follows God's law is like that. He, he bears fruit in his life. He's constantly sustained by the water. He's constantly growing. His roots grow deeper. He lives a life of purpose and fulfillment. These passages are saying that good things follow obedience to God's commandments. So it might be that John is saying... When you obey God and you walk in the blessing that follows, that blessing in your life is the tangible evidence of God's love for you being perfected in you. That's the subjective genitive here if we translate it that way. Now, what if we translate it as an objective genitive? Verse 5 reads like this, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly his love for God is being perfected. So whereas the subjective genitive wants to focus on God's love for us, the objective wants to focus on your love for God. In other words, here, John would be saying the more that you obey God, the more your love for God will increase. And this is also true, is it not? The more you love God, the more you love Him. The more you obey God, the more you desire to obey Him. Your your acts of love will increase your capacity to love. And it begins this cycle of joy and blessing in your life. C.S. Lewis said it a lot better than I can say it. Let me just read it. This is from Mere Christianity. He says, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. We're like, praise God for that, right? (laughs) Act as if you did. That's a little harder. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets... When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. He's saying if, if you act like you love someone, your love for that person will grow. It will increase. The very action of love gives birth to more actual love. In the world of recovery, we we like to say, fake it until you make it, right? Even if you're not really feeling like this is what you want to do, you do it anyways. And somehow doing that makes you want to do it again. Somehow one day sober leads to a desire for two days sober and so on and so forth. Lewis goes on, he talks about how the opposite is actually also true. And he uses Nazi Germany as an example to illustrate this. He says, the same spiritual law works terribly in the opposite direction. The Germans, perhaps, at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become. And so on in a vicious circle forever. So if this is true, and I think it is true, we demonstrate acts of love to Jesus how? How do we express our love for the Lord? He tells us by keeping his commandments. So as I keep his commandments, as I walk in obedience, I'm expressing my love for him. And as I do that, my love for him increases and leads to me wanting to obey him more. That's the idea of the objective genitive. Now, which is it? You're theologians out here, which is it? Is it the subjective genitive? Is he talking about God's love for us? Or is he talking about our love for God? Both are grammatically true, both are contextually true. Both are theologically accurate. So which is it? After all of that work and the language, my lower back is just, wow. My answer may dissatisfy you, but here it is. It's both. It's both. I believe that both are at work here. I believe that when we obey God's word, our love for him increases and his love for us is more clearly realized. And so the result of obedience, then check this out, is that we begin to love more like Christ. In John chapter 15, verses nine through 11, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love or remain in my love, live in it. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see that when we keep the commandments of Christ, we abide or remain in his love in the same way that Jesus kept the father's commandments and abides or remains in his father's love. We are imitating him in some way when we do this. As we obey him, we love in the same way that he loved. And Jesus says, when that happens, my joy will be in you and your joy will be full. It won't be burdensome, in other words. The law, keeping the commandments of God, becomes burdensome when you begin to think that they can save you. If your whole basis of getting into heaven is... Is, is hung on your ability to do what God says in his word, it's the worst news in the world because you know and I know it ain't happening, not perfectly, which is what God requires of you. But if we view the commandments not as a means of salvation, but as a means of serving the Lord that we love, that we understand has purchased salvation for us, then suddenly they're not burdensome at all. Now, are they difficult sometimes? Yes, definitely. Are they rewarding? Yes. Are they joyful? Yes. Is it worth it? Absolutely. When you obey, you begin to love like Christ. One of, the, one of the, the evidences of a saving faith is obedience, and that obedience makes you love more like Jesus. Secondly, you begin to act like Christ. Look at the second half of verse 5 and into verse 6. He says, by this, we may know that we are in him. Oh, no, hold on. My, my notes just keep on. This is the problem with technology. The moment you start putting your Bible notes on them, there we go. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John is saying here, not only are you going to begin to love more like Jesus, but your whole life is going to begin to look more like Jesus. You're going to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, this is significant, what John is doing here. John is introducing the idea that Jesus is in some way a model or an example that we are to follow. Now, that's, that's probably not super shocking to you, but understand it is an important distinction for him to make because the primary significance of Jesus' life in the flesh is much greater than simply being a good example. There are a lot of people in this world, especially in the secular world, that wanna make Jesus out to be just like a good moral example. He's a good moral teacher who lived out what he taught and nothing more. Just wanna follow kinda of his example and, and be a good person, right? But understand that the reason that Jesus came to live in the flesh is not primarily to be an example for you, but to die for your sin. John has already made that abundantly clear in this letter. 1 John 1 7, he reminded us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Last week, again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Christ died as an atoning sacrifice, one that both receives the fullness of God's wrath as a propitiation and also one that nullifies the fullness of our offense as expiation. Uh, So Jesus came in the flesh as much more than just a good moral example, but he is a good example too. And that's kind of the point that John is making here. Now, what does that mean? To walk in the same way in which he he walked? I mean, it could mean a lot of things. If we evaluate the life of Jesus, it it could mean a lot of things. It could mean being more forgiving forgiving other people more. Colossians 3:13. Paul says if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. To walk in the way in which he walked would mean in some ways to forgive other people. It could also mean to be uh, more sacrificial, to put others before yourself. Philippians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. To walk in the same way that the Lord walked would almost certainly include suffering, would it not? The Bible has a lot to say about that. It's not our favorite thing to think about, but it's certainly something that the scriptures speak to. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, we love that, praise God, believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. Don't love that part. 1 Peter chapter two verse twenty one. Peter says, for to you... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, so that you might walk in the way in which he walked. Remember the WWJD craze? (laughs) Did anyone know that when they put that thing on, it meant to suffer? What would Jesus do? He would suffer. And he did it as an example that you would know how to suffer as well. There's a lot of things that I think that this could, could really mean. I mean, more than we have time to unpack this morning. But really, I think given the context of chapter 2, to walk in the way in which he walked really just means to live a life that honors God through obedience to the Word. Christ was perfectly obedient. Christ was perfectly obedient to his Father. To, to, to walk in the same way in which he walked would mean to walk in obedience to the Father in the same manner that Christ walked in obedience To the Father. So, with that said, here's what this means it means that you can evaluate the validity of your faith based on how much your obedience resembles Jesus' obedience. I want you to think about this for a moment. If your obedience to God doesn't match Jesus' obedience in some way, again, not perfect, not going to be perfect, but if it doesn't look at all like Christ, it isn't obedience, it's laughable delusion. Do your actions, does your obedience in your life communicate genuine faith in the same way that Christ's obedience to the Father communicates it? Because when we walk in obedience, it should look like Him. It should resemble Him. This is why Jesus says, you're going to be a light in the world. You're not much of a light if you don't look like the light. You're not going to be much of Jesus to people if you don't resemble Jesus at all. When we walk in obedience, it changes us. Not only do we love more like Christ, we begin to act more like Jesus. But finally, you begin to serve Christ as Lord, as Lord. Now, pay attention to the word ought in verse 6. You ought, we ought to walk in the same way. So the Greek term of phalo, it's a word that means to be indebted to someone or to owe something to someone. And In other words, what John is conveying here is that he's not saying you should simply love like Jesus and live like Jesus because it's a good thing. He's saying, no, 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 you owe it to him. You are indebted to him. You are a servant or a slave to him. Now, that might sound strong, but consider how Christians describe themselves in the New Testament. Paul, Romans chapter 1.1. 1, 1. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He sees himself as an indebted slave to his Lord and master Jesus Christ. He says in Romans chapter 6 verses 17 and 18, he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, hallelujah, we love that, free, 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 right? Free from sin, freedom in Christ, love it, liberty, it's amazing. But what does he say? You've become slaves of righteousness. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that you're just free. You need to get that. You've been set free from the power of sin. And you've been purchased as a servant to that master. And you no longer belong to that master, but you belong now to another master. A much better master, a merciful one, a compassionate one. One who will die in your place that you might have life. You're a slave of Christ in his righteousness. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ I can't please other people. I'm not going to please other people because I don't care. My allegiance, my servitude, what I owe, my indebtedness is not to the world. It's not to individuals. It's to Jesus. Philippians chapter one, verse one: Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. James one one: James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter two sixteen: Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up, but as slaves of God. 2 Peter 1.1, Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Do you get the idea that the Christians of the New Testament saw themselves as anything other than slaves of the Lord Christ? They were very clear in their identity and what they owed to the Lord, and, and the price that had been paid for them, and, and what that meant for their lives, that I no longer am in control, but that I lay my life down in servitude to the one who purchased me, who is my master. I want to ask you this this morning, and I, and I want you to think very deeply about that. We're going to end here at this point, uh, here in a, in a few moments. This is the last like, big thing I want you to think about. So really give me your attention for a moment, and consider the answer to this question, because it's a very important question for you. Do you see yourself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And be honest. We love to say, Jesus is Lord. We love that. Put that on stickers. Put that on a shirt. Put it on a coffee mug. Jesus is Lord. Praise God. Hallelujah. What about, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ? We don't say that because that would mean now I'm obligated to him. And if I'm a slave to Christ, I don't get a a, a say in who I love and who I don't love. I don't don't get a say in who I forgive and who I don't forgive. I don't get to decide what is sin and what isn't. I don't get to decide how I serve the body or or whether I serve the body at all. If I'm a slave to Christ, I don't get to weigh in on whether I invest my life into the local body of Christ or, or if I should plug into a Bible study or if I should give my time and my resources and my money to ministry. Because as long as I see myself as free... I can choose how far I go with any of this. I'm in the driver's seat, I'm in control. Jesus take the wheel, except for hold on, I'm still driving. But biblical faith says, no, you are not in control. You are not in the driver's seat and you are not free. You have been purchased by another and you now belong to him. And so if you have been bought with his blood, if he is your advocate who died on your behalf to mitigate God's wrath and cancel your debt, you get no say in the matter. You don't get to go through the Bible like a buffet and pick out what I like and I don't really like this. I'll come back for that later maybe. That's out of date. That doesn't really apply to me. He's either Lord or he isn't. And if he is, that makes you his slave. So let me say it this way. Stop asking yourself whether or not Jesus is your Lord and start asking whether or not you are his servant. Because the answer to that question will answer the first one. If you are a part-time servant, a Sunday servant, a couple hours a week servant, he's not your Lord. If you are his servant, though, there's going to be evidence there's going to be evidence of obedience. Don't be like Florence Foster Jenkins and fool yourself into thinking you're something you're not. There's always evidence of obedience in your life, and that obedience is such a good thing because it makes you love more like the Lord, it makes you act more like the Lord, and it puts yourself in rightful perspective to who He is, a servant to the Master who purchased you and owns the rights to your life. And when you joyfully submit to him who has laid his life down on your behalf, to know fellowship with him and the Father through the Holy Spirit, your joy will be made complete, it will be full. And the love for God and God's love for you is perfected in your life. Let's pray. father we're we're never not surprised by just the challenge of scripture it's so true it's it's so hard to hear sometimes and yet it's exactly what we need give us god the the just the rigorous honesty to evaluate how serious we are about our faith about our commitment to jesus I believe that sitting on a hill is, that you have positioned us here to be a light in a very dark world, to be all about the help, hope, and healing of Christ, to desperately hurting people. Would you help us, God, exhibit that kind of radical commitment to you and your gospel? Nothing breaks the chains of sin, but you, through belief in the gospel, so God, set us on fire. Burden us with the desire to serve you more, not out of fear, but out of joy, out of, out of an expectation to see you sovereignly reign on your throne over your people. How we love you, how we thank you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Yeah. You're like, do we clap? I don't, I don't know. We have uh, verses 7 through 11 next week if you'd like to read ahead. And uh, the following week, March 5th, just a reminder, mark your calendar, Dr. Carl Bradford, Professor of Evangelism at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary will be here. He preached at chapel this past week, I listened in, I was reminded of why I am excited for that brother to come. He is, uh, he, is, he is gonna communicate God's word in a powerful way. So we've got a lot of exciting things uh, ahead of us moving into spring break. And then guys, we're like, we're like a little over a month away from Easter. So um, that's what the pagans call it, Resurrection Sunday. God bless you. <laughs>